With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Again, everyone, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground. And I'm your host, Urban Jungle Girl, on the Midas Right Network at MidasRight.net. Between the live podcast, Midas Right streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Tonight, I will be covering, uh, again, I'm, I'm reading uh, Civil War II, The Coming Breakup of America by Thomas Chittam 
which was written in 1997, updated in 2007. Uh, last week I covered the first four chapters uh, of that book, and uh, the primary focus uh, last week uh, was an emphasis on uh, the Mestizo invasion of the Southwest. It was interesting that two days later I found um, an interesting article that uh, someone on our network will be interested to know about. I'm sure he already does, but it's the Mexicanization of Wisconsin, a non-Southwestern state, and it was published in VDARE. It's about, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's about the uh, Mexican consulate um, now operating a mobile uh, consulate that they're going to take to Wisconsin since the number of uh, of uh, illegal uh, invaders uh, there is so high that uh, they they need to have somebody in place to uh, facilitate the the invasion of that state. So uh, it's an interesting article. It was published on the 8th of October uh, at vdare.com. And uh, so you might want to take a look at that. It's a three-page article, so I'm not going to read that. But um, I just thought I'd bring it up. So tonight I'm going to start by reading Chapter 5 in Thomas Chittam's book. And uh, we begin with the revolution in the Black South. Today Malcolm X and Martin Luther King is the historic voice of young blacks. What of Southern blacks and their military potential? The unfolding of events in the Southwest is clear, at least in the final result. In the South, however, events will be dictated as much by external forces as internal ones. The black population of the South is growing faster than the white population, partially because of the higher black birth rate and because blacks of the northern cities are increasingly returning to their southern home states because crime has turned the northern black slums into concrete killing fields. This trend of blacks returning to the South should continue as third world immigrants, particularly Hispanics, have taken much low skilled employment that is the primary source of black income in northern cities. In addition, immigrant third world entrepreneurs who provide much urban employment these days often hold violently racist attitudes about blacks. Blacks should remind themselves that many third-world immigrants are entirely without the sense of historic guilt that many northern whites embrace. Depending on how strong and how long these demographic currents flow, the South will either tip into a black majority, white minority posture before Civil War II erupts, or it will not. It is manifest to objective observers that serious ethnic warfare to the point of secession will first erupt in the southwest, with Los Angeles being a good bet for its epicenter. After the Mexican reconquista of the southwest, all will realize that America, as a multi-ethnic nation, is psychedelic fiction from the 60s, and ethnic conflict will flash across the south. Depending on many factors, but primarily the demographic factor, two scenarios are likely we shall first deal with the black majority, white minority scenario. By 2050 A.D., blacks will certainly be the majority in the states of the Deep South. The southern black establishment will seize political control, first of the major cities, exactly as they've already done in Atlanta, Georgia. That was from 1997. And now they've got Memphis and uh, all 
sorts of places throughout Tennessee and uh well just a lot of places that I that I can't even bring to mind right now but but it's uh pretty hairy in the south. The whites will flee to de facto white enclaves, exactly as they're now abandoning Atlanta, seeking refuge in Forsyth and Dawson counties in the north of Atlanta. The wealthy whites of the old southern establishment seeking to retain their power and property are spouting much nonsense about power sharing and a supposed new south. It is a pathetic exercise in self-deception. As in the Southwest, demographics and racist affirmative action will force out the whites, starting with the non-property-owning, working-class whites. To the victors go the spoils, and the new black establishment will gorge itself. Their loot will come from increased taxes that will intentionally bankrupt and drive out white business owners, from municipal contracts from which white businessmen will be barred by racist affirmative action, from kickbacks and corruption of all sorts, from protection payoffs, from black gangs grown into mafias, and from stolen federal aid meant for the poverty-stricken citizens of their cities. These cities controlled by the black establishment will be one-party mini-states, and therefore utterly and irreversibly corrupt. The power base of the black establishment in the slums of poor, bitter, and radical blacks and the black establishment will prudently see to it that their power base remains poor, bitter, and radical. White flight will accelerate, and blacks will become the voting majority in one southern state after another. The black establishment will then legally seize entire state governments in elections, one after another, precipitating even more white flight. The actual sequence of military conflict in the South will be complicated by two factors. One is the number and size of the remaining white enclaves. The whites of these enclaves will increasingly become radicalized and form self-defense militias. Clashes with black militias and black-controlled police forces will occur, and they will steadily increase in frequency, duration, and violence until most white enclaves are abandoned or overrun Only those white enclaves on the periphery of the black heartland have any real chance of long-term survival. Another complicating factor will be alignment of the northern-dominated federal government, which at first will support the powerful black establishment because of its vote-delivering power, but will quite possibly be seized by revolutionaries of one type or another at some point. As in the Southwest, the federal government will face the dilemma of massive and indiscriminate use of heavy weapons against its own citizens or acquiescing to Southern black independence. Civil War II in the South will be widespread due to the close intermingling of the races, which the white flight into enclaves will only partly reduce. It will also be utterly without mercy due to the mutual hatred and loathing so deeply rooted in Southern history. Unlike the Mexican aliens in the Southwest, all blacks are citizens who can vote. They have a cohesive establishment that is already seizing power legally and gradually, thus skipping the guerrilla stage of Civil War II, at least initially. In fact, the first guerrilla and or terrorist formations to appear in the South will almost certainly be white. Military virtues, traditional values, patriotism, Religious fundamentalism, adherence to cultural norms, and distrust of central authority have long been features of Southern white culture. 
Likewise, many white Southerners tend to react to events in a very personal and immediate manner, a characteristic that confounds Yankees. All these are characteristics of a warrior culture, not unlike Afghans or Apaches, and this Southern white warrior culture will have much impact on the unfolding of Civil War II in the South. The South has been an occupied country since Civil War I, or at least psychologically occupied, and the threat of federal intervention was the only thing that kept the South from all-out tribal warfare in the 60s. Should the threat of federal intervention fade for any reason, genocidal warfare could erupt in the South. The whites and blacks in the South exist in a state similar to the Tutus and the Hutsis in Rwanda. They were intermingled. They are an economic, political, and psychological competition, and they have mutual history except that of mutual loathing and hatred. Blacks are seizing political power in the South, and white Southerners face the stark reality that guerrilla warfare will be their only realistic reply to legally constituted black political military pressure in the form of black politicians and black police who will combine to abuse whites, seize their property under color of law, and generally make life untenable. And all this will be done with the cooperation of the federal government, federal police, the federal judiciary, and the federal military. In summation, the course of events in the South will likely follow this scenario. 1. The blacks will seize political power legally, at least in the Deep South. 2. Whites will flee to enclaves within the South, and many will abandon the South altogether. 3. The corrupt black establishment will utterly impoverish the areas under its control possibly leading to a takeover by revolutionary black extremists. Four, fighting will erupt between the blacks and the militias of the remaining white enclaves, in which most of the whites will be killed off unless rescued by the federal government. Five, the final result will be an independent black nation in the Deep South, with Atlanta its probable capital. Mao's rules for protracted rural-based revolution don't apply well in the South because the blacks will acquire power legally and because the whites have the option of fleeing. Rather, events in the South will more likely follow the Yugoslav model, where massive fighting broke out almost overnight following a total breakdown of central authority. This breakdown of authority might take the form of the overflow of the black establishment by black radicals or an attempt by the federal government to reassert its authority, or by spontaneous outbursts of genocide of whites by blacks, and blacks by whites. In any case, the casualties will be massive as remaining white enclaves within the new black nation are overrun, and black enclaves in white territory just outside the boundaries of the new black nation are likewise eliminated. The white majority, black minority scenario what if the blacks are not the majority in the South when Civil War II begins in earnest? They will lose, to be sure, but what will they lose and what will they be left with? In this black minority scenario, events will unfold much as in the black majority scenario, but they will seize no more than, say, three state governments prior to Civil War II, perhaps none. Instead of surrounded white enclaves, surrounded black enclaves will fall to ethnic cleansing it is still probable that the whites will allow the blacks a homeland, the Mississippi Valley, 
as far north as Memphis and scattered pockets of the Black Belt as far north as Washington, D.C. The other possibility in the event of white victory is the assigning of blacks to another category entirely consistent with the Western concept of total war. This alternative is soul-chilling, but we must not shy away because Civil War II may topple us into this abyss. To understand this possibility, we must digress a bit and rethink our concept of war. Quote, War is the continuation of politics by other means. Karl von Clausewitz, Prussian general and Western military philosopher. The ghost of Karl von Clausewitz still haunts the nightmares of professional soldiers and statesmen alike because no moral man among them has yet made a reply to his implied axiom or even admitted openly that the Prussian dared to hint it. The Prussian aristocrat forever struck the concept of war from the moral constellation where his predecessors had placed it. If he had falsely proclaimed that war was ennobling, he would have gone down in history with lesser men such as Nietzsche. If he had condemned war as immoral, he would have been dismissed out of hand. In his book, Vom Krieg on War, Clausewitz stated that wars are affairs to benefit the state, an entity expressed as a sort of secular trinity of the establishment, the people, and the military, that this state, quote-unquote, has interests that are sometimes most conveniently expediated by, quote, the other means, end quote, of war, and sometimes not. Clausewitz reduced war to the dispassionate status of a sort of carpenter's tool, nothing more, to be applied when expedient to the extent of sufficient. No longer would statesmen and generals have to fuss with God, ethics, morals, honor, and similar pre-industrial, pre-Darwinian bores when making the decision to initiate war. Men were now at once the both measure of all things and the object of their own quantification, Darwin, von Clausewitz, and Adam Smith, the authors of The Apocalyptic Era, an era without a climax. But what measures sufficiency? What indeed? Clausewitz held that, quote, war, therefore, is an act of violence intended to compel our opponents to fulfill our will. But Clausewitz made no direct mention of the temporal dimension of will or of the cyclical nature of political will-fulfilling that yoked all Europe to endless circling around the mill of war as if Europe were a mindless ox. The answer lies in Clausewitz's Prussian concept of honor that compelled him to state, quote, war is nothing but a duel on a larger scale, end quote. Ironically, the Marxists were students of Clausewitz and endorsed his technical concept of war, which fit Marxist constructions quite nicely. Their consideration of the temporal dimension was the establishment of a global communist society that was to be permanent, the last and final revolution. After the Marxist revolution, there would simply be no more wars, as wars were nothing more than the inevitable clashes between competing cliques of capitalists. Hitler also studied Clausewitz, and because he was a true revolutionary, grasped Clausewitz's error when he said, quote, Generals think war should be waged like the tourneys of the Middle Ages. I have no use for knights. I need revolutionaries, end quote. There you have it. No honor, no duels, no knights, but a completion of the revolution that the aristocrats started. 
Not only did Hitler separate the decision to wage war and morality, he also separated its conduct and morality. More importantly, he considered the meaning of will in the temporal dimension. Hitler's answer to the temporal problem was also a permanent order in which opponents strong enough to challenge Germany would simply no longer exist, not even potentially. Hitler conceived to relieve Germany forever of the endless cycle of war by the direct extension of Clausewitz's logic upon selected categories of Germany's perceived internal and external antagonists. Hitler's deficiencies were moral and practical. He was guilty of no inconsistency between his philosophy and its application, and his military philosophy was straight von Clausewitz, no chaser. The scenario of Clausewitzian total war in America is not inevitable but must be considered without flinching. Contrast the situation of the blacks to that of the Hispanics. There are something on the order of 90 million Mexicos in Mexico and perhaps another 25 million Hispanics in America. They are a formidable military force. Moreover, there are numerous Spanish-speaking countries whose opinions matter to a degree of caution. African Americans, on the other hand, are far less numerous and have not clearly so powerful a foreign constituency. Who would actually commit themselves to the military defense of American blacks? Who would actually regret their passing beyond a brief spasm of chest-beating sufficient for the usual ceremonial hypocrisy? If this attitude seems objective to the point of real politic, observe that it will reflect the real attitude of many in the time of Civil War II. And reality, after all, not currently fashionable, is our focus of analysis. Blacks should prepare themselves for such an eventuality. They would be well advised to make restricting Hispanic immigration their next two primary strategic objectives. They should reflect on how blacks are universally abused in Hispanic countries. Current America will go Hispanic, but blacks can prepare for such an eventuality. The more time passes, the more they are likely to take demographic and military possession of the Old South. Time is on their side, and the later Civil War II erupts, the more likely they will secure their indispensable sanctuary. Their medium-term strategic interests dictate an accommodation to white interests, however bitter this reality is. Their northern black ghettos are, and will continue to be for some time, militarily vulnerable. Their southern sanctuary is still not secured and is at present hardly a string of sub-regional enclaves. Premature ignition of Civil War II could well mean a solution imposed upon blacks by whites who will grasp the principle of total war intuitively, if not directly and intellectually. Note that Hitler was a student of Clausewitz, a student who surpassed his master and brought his philosophy to its resolution. The measures that Hitler took were consistent with total war and our currently accepted Western philosophy of war as originally expressed by Clausewitz. To those who say that Hitler was a psychopath, it must be noted that they are entirely correct. But they must also understand that his psychopathic reasoning was entirely consistent with our current Western Clausewitzian philosophy of war and with the social conditions of imperial societies including our own imperial America, 
which are similarly rooted in the psychopathic axiom that people are best judged by some social engineering cocktail of tribe, social class, and the crimes of their ancestors. In Imperial America, our current version of this psychopathic axiom is racist affirmative action. As America becomes more imperialistic, we shall also become more psychopathic along group lines. Sooner or later, we will topple into civil war. When we do, we will embark on a program of systematic punishment of groups deemed responsible for this or that misfortune, just as happened in Nazi Germany. You cannot adopt a system of government without receiving, to a considerable degree, the manifestations of its philosophical foundation. The concept of manifest destiny served its adherence well so that even those who disparage it most must admit that it was a most profitable concept. When the concept of a multi-tribal America dies riddled with AK-47 slugs and epithets, those with orderly minds will cast about for some concept to organize their new society around. They will look to the past. Manifest destiny covered with a glossy coat of tribal war paint may be just the idea. It cannot be dismissed that the establishment itself will impose this solution if their amoral calculus indicates it serves their purposes. Blacks should pause from time to time and remind themselves that the establishment's abandonment of the white working class was not based on moral principles but self-serving computation. Also, despite the oh-so-fashionable disparagement of the white working class by the wine and cheese set, these angry white males will remain the most potent pool of military assets in North America for some time. Should the white establishment give them the go-ahead, the blacks will not survive. An establishment-imposed solution may well be a final solution. Chapter 6. Apocalypse in the North. Quote, Negro equality, fudge, how long in the government of a god great enough to make and rule the universe shall there continue knaves to fend and fools to quip so low a piece of demagogism as this? Abraham Lincoln from Fragments, Notes on Speeches, 1859, Volume 3. The heart of America, its culture and its wealth, beats in the European English-speaking north. Here we see the pattern of black inner cities surrounded by primarily white suburban and rural areas. Blacks will seize the municipal governments and urban blacks will become increasingly poverty-stricken due to mismanagement and corruption of black one-party rule, the recent financial collapse of Washington, D.C. being a case in point. Riots will increase and the black mayors will not put them down so as not to alienate their power base, just as New York's Mayor Dinkins gave his tacit blessings to the Crown Heights riot of 1991. Consider this quote from an article by John Taylor in the New York Magazine entitled, The Pogrom Papers. Quote, Not only were Jews singled out for attack, a necessary but not a sufficient condition for a pogrom, but just as happened during Kristallnacht, the anti-Semitic rampage seemed to the Jews on the streets to have official sanction. Police on patrolling Crown Heights threatened with suspension if they moved from their designated positions. At times, did nothing to stop the violence. A Hasidic Jew named Isaac Bitten told investigators he was walking home with his 12-year-old son on Tuesday night and asked police if 
Schenectady Avenue was safe. They assured him it was, but an aggressive crowd on the other side of the avenue approached him. He was hit with a brick and fell. The mob pulled his son away and beat him. This all took place in view of the police. One resident on the street saw the incident from her window and screamed for the police to help them. The report says, quote, the police, she says, did not come to their assistance. When some citizens sued the city over this withholding of police protection, city attorneys responded thusly in court, quote, the plaintiff simply had no constitutional or federal right to have the police respond to their calls for assistance or to receive police protection against potential harm caused by private parties, end quote. This breathtaking response gives us a clear preview of what urban life will become when the demographic and political transformation of our cities is completed. And bear in mind that you won't be allowed any firearm to defend yourself. In fact, if you dare to, the police will arrest you. Let me repeat that quote again, so hopefully you will feel the full weight of the words. Quote, the plaintiff simply had no constitutional or federal right to have the police respond to their calls for assistance or to receive police protection against potential harm caused by private parties, end quote. Crimes of all sorts will increase driving out whites. The surrounding white areas will grow increasingly radical. Walled suburbs will spread as America takes on the appearance of medieval Europe as in the South, white militias will form. Our government and institutions will effectively abolish many of our traditional liberties, such as freedom of speech and the right to bear arms, to appease radical blacks. White and black police will clash with each other, first within police departments, later white suburban and black city police will have firefights where their boundaries meet. Predominantly, white National Guard units will likewise clash with black city police in the course of putting down riots. These radical firefights will escalate in frequency, duration, and scope as black police departments acquire the armaments of armies in order to control urban riots, but also to give radical black mayors an intimidating bargaining chip in negotiations with the white federal government. If anyone thinks a second civil war has not crossed the minds of black mayors, they should ponder this quote from a 1988 interview with Detroit's Mayor Coleman Young, interviewer of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, quote, what would happen if you went door-to-door -door and started collecting all of the guns? End quote. Mayor Young responded that he had no objection to confiscating guns as long as it was done equally in both black and white areas. Then he continued, Quote, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let them collect guns in the city of Detroit while we're surrounded by hostile suburbs and the whole rest of the state who have guns, where you have vigilantes practicing Ku Klux Klan in the wilderness with automatic weapons, end quote. The New York Times article that this quote appeared in had the telling title, quote, The battle lines are clear and dangerous, the white suburbs versus the black city, end quote. Battle lines, automatic weapons, surrounded whites versus black. All these sound as if they were lifted from the dispatches of two dying nations locked in war. Eventually, open warfare will erupt. Open war may erupt when minority politicians and their radical leftist allies seize power in federal elections, precipitating total disintegration of our regular military along racial lines. 
or it may erupt when gangs or armed cults, such as the Nation of Islam, declare independence for the cities they control. On the face of it, the blacks in the cities confront an insurmountable military disadvantage. First, most heavy weapons are at this time located in federal military bases outside the cities in predominantly white areas and therefore should fall primarily into the hands of white formations. Also, cities are completely dependent on food, water, fuel, and electrical power that must constantly flow in from surrounding areas inhabited by whites. As these are easy to cut off, the cities should be quickly reduced to nothing but masses of freezing, starving targets subject to artillery bombardment at the discretion of the white besiegers, something like Sarajevo in Bosnia. However, demographics and other circumstances may well tilt the balance of power to the blacks. If the federal government is captured by an alliance of radical whites and minorities, they may prudently transfer heavy weapons to military bases loyal to them. Also, the federal military will be primarily minority by the time of Civil War II in the North. A minority-dominated federal military and the military formations of southern blacks might well have more firepower than white suburban and rural populations who may well be without privately owned firearms by the time these events come to pass. It is clear that in a straight-up black versus white confrontation in the North, the blacks lose. This reality dictates a strategy of a black alliance with establishment white imperialists and internationalists. This is a high-risk strategy because blacks will almost certainly be thrown overboard by the establishment if the percentage of their population decreases and it may well result in a white genocidal fury against them if it is unsuccessful and the whites win. If the blacks are initially successful, white guerrillas will certainly fight back. Again, these events will not occur in isolation. Canada, which itself may break up into English-speaking and French-speaking sections, may provide sanctuaries for white guerrilla formations. Foreign governments may give assistance to either side as their self-interest dictate, and the UN may occupy parts of America. Demographic pressures and racial conflict that are propelling the northern section of America into Civil War II are all too easy to see. On the other hand, it is impossible to make confident predictions about the complex set of circumstances that will give victory to one side or the other because time and demographics are eroding the military potential of northern whites. Still, on the whole, the prospects of the white revolutionaries appear better. It is in the north that the final and climactic battle over the carcass of imperial America will be fought and an exclusively white nation will likely arise. The black cities will either be wiped out or allowed autonomy, perhaps in confederation with the black south. Chapter 7. I'm going to have a sip of tea. The Tribal Armies of Civil War II. Quote, Well, I don't know if they'll frighten the enemy or not, but they certainly frighten me. End quote. Lord Wellington after inspecting his troops. How will the armies that fight Civil War II come into being? 
Who will join them, and why and where will they get their weapons? America is saturated with armed organizations that will blossom into the tribal armies of Civil War II. The Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, their reserve components, and 50 state national guards, the Border Patrol, the Secret Service, the BATF, the DEA, the FBI, the CIA, and U.S. Marshals. All totaled, there are 46 civilian agencies of the federal government that have agents who carry guns and have the power to make arrests. Don't go away, there's more. State police, county police, city police, housing police, transit police, Indian reservation police, prison guards, and private security companies. And now for the tribal party animals, the mafia, the Colombian cocaine cartels, Jamaican posses, the ghost shadows, the flying dragons, anti-Castro paramilitary units, Muslim terrorist cells, the Jewish Defense League, the fruit of Islam, the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, the Christian identity movement, armed religious cults, the black guerrilla family, Crips, Bloods, the gangster disciples, the black disciples, the L.A. boys, the Nettas, the Zulu Nation, the Jungle Boys, the Jungle Brothers, the Abdullahs, Los Salidos, the Hazard Gang, the Nuestra Familia, United Raza, the Fresno Bulldogs, the Two Sixers, the Insane Deuces, the Insane Unknowns, Twenty Love, the Bottom Boys, the Vice Lords, the Harpies, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Nations, the White Patriot Party, the Michigan Militia, the Blue Ridge Hunt Club, the Alabama Militia, the Arizona Militia, the Butte County Militia, the Indiana Militia, the Michigan Militia, the Montana Militia, the Georgia Militia, the Oregon Militia, the Colorado Free Militia, the Texas Constitutional Militia, the Carboneers, the Minnesota Patriot Council, the Texas Emergency Reserve, the Alabama Minutemen, the Special Forces Underground, Hells Angels, Banditos, the Gypsy Jokers, Pagans, Warlocks, the International Posse, the Black Panther Militia, the Aryan Republican Army, White Aryan Resistance, the Islamic Libertarian Army, the Freemen, Skinheads, and other armed groups too numerous to mention. These fellows are not the sort of chaps one would invite to tea with Her Majesty. On the other hand, they are just the kind of all-American guys to play Civil War II from kickoff to champagne. These belligerent groups are almost all ethnically oriented, and our police departments are increasingly becoming ethnically oriented as well. Unless present trends reverse themselves, even the federal agencies and federal military will be racially oriented and polarized. Not a pretty picture. America is plainly splitting up and armed camps along ethnic fault lines, but no one seems to have noticed. Certainly not the establishment media. Why? To this witch's brew, one must add, all the firepower. First, stir in the untold number of guns and heavy weapons in the hands of the armed forces and police. Then shovel in an estimated 200 million privately held firearms. Just about one for every adult in the United States of America. In California in 1993, 665,229 firearms were sold legally. That's 1,873 per day. 
About two-thirds were handguns, which means that the remaining one-third, or about 600 per day, were shotguns or rifles. That means that every day in 1993, enough shotguns and rifles were sold in California to equip an infantry battalion. I say again, every day in California, enough rifles and shotguns were sold to equip an infantry battalion, an infantry battalion of Civil War II. California is the odds-on favorite to kick off Civil War II, and one cannot disparage the Californians for lack of preparedness. And that's just the legal stuff. How much else is coming across the border and being sold on the black market? Chapter 8 Urban Street Gangs Quote, The instinctive need to be the member of a closely knit group fighting for common ideals may grow so strong that it becomes inessential what these ideals are. Conrad Lorenz Street gangs will doubtless form the core of future black and Hispanic urban militias. Consider these particulars of urban street gangs. 1. They are self-financed by the drug trade. 2. They are ethnically oriented. 3. They are heavily armed. 4. They are organized and disciplined. They have constitutions and ensure organizational survival despite the death and imprisonment of their leaders. 5. They are numerous almost beyond belief. The Los Angeles Sheriff has files on 100,000 gang members. San Antonio has an estimated 5,000 gang members. Chicago has an estimated 50,000. Malcolm Klein, perhaps America's leading authority on street gangs, estimates that there are over 400,000 street gang members in America. All totaled, Attorney General Janet Reno has put the figure in excess of 500,000 gang members nationwide in 16,000 different gangs. She has said that in 1993 they committed 580,000 gang-related crimes. Their leadership is composed of courageous, industrious, and intelligent young men, not dim-witted punks as commonly depicted by Hollywood, because promotion is based exclusively on leadership, business acumen, and successful application of ruthless violence. Without anyone noticing it, these urban gangs have evolved into large formations of light infantry, in their organization, discipline, aggressiveness, manpower, and firepower, they are almost indistinguishable from formal armies. Let me say that again so that hopefully it hits you like somebody pounding a nail into your head with a hammer. These urban gangs are evolving into serious armies, armies hostile to the established government. The only significant difference between these urban gangs and the armies is that the gang exists for criminal purposes. Should their primary objectives become political and many are becoming involved in politics, then these gangs will instantly be transformed into real armies. These gangs cannot be eliminated by any amount of police activity, just as police activity never succeeded in eliminating the mafia. These gangs were conceived in and thrive in the environment of vast, desperately poor, and densely packed slums, slums neglected and abandoned by the establishment. These gangs have a lucrative monopoly on the drug trade in these slums and are thus self-propelled financially. They are steadily growing in financial power, firepower, manpower, and sophistication, they are now beginning to branch out into other illegal activities such as protection rackets, labor union corruption, and political corruption just as the Mafia did. 
The mafia thrived in the huge slums of Italian immigrants, but the Italians assimilated and moved to the suburbs, and the mafia has eroded in proportion. The huge black and Hispanic slums are not shrinking. They are expanding, and the gangs are growing in proportion. These minority ghettos are permanent and expanding fixtures of our society, and their expansion beyond a certain indefinable extent means inevitable civil war. When considering gangs, it is necessary to note that many of their activities are political in nature. Money from protection rackets are a form of taxation, and the protection provided from rival gangs is a form of police protection. Labor union takeovers by gangs is a form of organizing society. That these activities are illegal does not invalidate this fact. These gangs are establishing economic, social, legal, and even military structures that parallel the legal structures that connect the ghettos to the rest of American society. And these illegal structures are displacing their legal counterparts, which have ceased to function in any meaningful way except to serve as siphon hoses, sucking money out of the ghetto inhabitants and into the pockets of the politically connected. The establishment sanctions some minority structures in a lame attempt to co-option and to provide a sort of counterbalance to the illegal and clearly anti-establishment minority organizations such as gangs and the Nation of Islam. Typically, leaders such as the Reverend Jesse Jackson receive large grants of tax money, corporate money, foundation money, airtime on the establishment media, and fawning praise from establishment politicians. That the Reverend Jesse Jackson neither vomits nor breaks out in howls of laughter during these disgusting displays of self-flagellation and sucking up is testimony to his amazing self-control. If you're still not convinced that these urban street gangs pose a real threat to professional police and soldiers, think again. In Bosnia, Muslim criminal gangs scored the initial victories against the Yugoslav army, taking their garrisons under siege and capturing their heavy weapons that provided the backbone of the fledgling Bosnian army. Recently in Grozny, most of the fighters came from gangs transformed into heavily armed militias and it took the mighty Russian army approximately three months to drive them out of Grozny, despite leveling that city with airstrikes and artillery that at times reached 4,000 impacts an hour. In fact, in the initial assault, entire units of the professional Russian army were wiped out to the last man. Dogs roamed the streets, eating the dead while the elderly starved and froze in damp cellars. It should also be noted that the local police sided with these gang militias to fight the Russian invaders, just as our police will eventually side with their co-ethnics. The Russian government was faced with the reality that they had to level Grozny or accept a humiliating defeat at the hands of militias. Their choice is history and provides us with a preview of what will happen to our own cities should the ghetto street gangs ever aspire to political goals. Actually, America's street gangs have already begun to take on political goals. In Chicago in 1995, two avowed former members of the Gangster Disciples ran for seats on the city council. One gangster candidate was Wallace Gator Bradley, a convicted felon and ex-con. Both lost by two-to-one vote margins, but they resolved to try again. A political group tied to the Gangster Disciples 
bought 300 shirts, ties, skirts, and blouses for the campaign workers to wear. This is an expected milestone on the march towards Civil War II, so watch for more direct political action by street gangs. On November 25, 1994, some 200 leading members of New York's black and Hispanic street gangs met in a theater in Harlem with two members of New York's black political establishment, the Reverend Al Sharpton and Eric Adams, the head of the Guardians, an association of black New York city police officers. Officially, they were there to discuss ways to end violence in the streets. This avowed reason was nothing but fluff for the media. In reality, they were there to promote their mutual interests. Military power, which the street gangs possess, is the foundation of political power, which the Reverend Sharpton and Officer Adams have and want more of. Political power, which Sharpton and Adams have, will lend legitimacy to the gangs. But the alliance of gangsters and politicians goes beyond this immediate goal of mutual reinforcement. Viewed from the proper perspective, this conjunction of gangsters and politicians comes into the sharper focus. To create a nation, several fundamental items are required. First, you must have a large body of people who mutually recognize each other as co-nationals. Second, they must reside together in a land where they are the majority. Third, you must have a political establishment of some sort. Fourth, you must have a military force to defend your land. The gangsters and the politicians brought together the two final elements necessary for the creation of an embryonic nation, the military power of the gangs and the political organization of Sharpton and Adams. Another such convention occurred on May 1, 1993 in Los Angeles featuring the Crips and the Bloods. A week later, the Reverend Benjamin Chavis, an executive director of the NAACP, attended a similar national gang summit in Kansas City, Missouri. In October 1993, Jesse Jackson attended a national truce summit, quote-unquote, of street gangs in Chicago and told the gangsters that they represented the, quote, new frontier of the civil rights struggle, end quote. The plain truth is that we are seeing the first examples of establishment black leaders bidding for the military backing of the gangs. We will see much more of this unholy courtship in the future. Watch for the first public protest demonstration by gang members, which will further signal that the gangs are taking on political goals. If any black politicians attend it, it will be a clear sign that the street gangs and black politicians do indeed have a common agenda, a common political and military agenda. Also, watch for the first report of gangs organizing themselves along military lines, drawing up plans for defense of their areas against the police and military, wearing military uniforms, assuming military ranks, standardizing their weapons, and other indications that they are beginning to reinvent themselves as political and or military organizations. These gangs have even infiltrated the very organizations that are supposedly going to protect us from them during Civil War II. According to the Chicago Sun-Times, in the last three years, 15 Chicago policemen have been charged with crimes, forced to resign, or investigated for membership in a street gang. Here's how Chicago Police Superintendent Matt Rodriguez summed up the situation. Quote, We can't deny we have individuals who are members 
fraternize or associate with street gangs. Why would they not do the same things organized crime always did, such as infiltrate the police? If the mob bought judges, politicians, and policemen, why do we think the gangs can't do it? End quote. Incredibly, the Chicago police brass now allows known and even self-admitted gang members to masquerade as police because the police brass claim they cannot fire these gangster cops until they actually violate the law. Why can't they fire them for lying on their applications? Presumably, applicants are asked if they belong to street gangs. Why can't the police brass use the RICO anti-conspiracy laws to get rid of these gangster cops? Regrettably, we must seriously ask if some gangs are now more disciplined, better organized, and less corrupt than some of our urban police departments. If we compare what is probably our premier gang, the Gangster Disciples, to what is probably our worst major police department, the New Orleans Police, it's clear that the Gangster Disciples are by far the superior organization, even as our gangs are growing inside, becoming more sophisticated and better organized and armed. Our police departments are headed in the opposite direction, steadily growing more corrupt, less organized, and less less disciplined. To any sober and objective observer, it's clear where these two ongoing trends are taking us. From a purely military perspective, the urban gangs could probably defeat some of our urban police departments right now, today, if they acted in concert. If you think not, recall that there are an estimated... 100,000 gang members in Los Angeles. I have no idea of how many police there are in Los Angeles, but it must be less because there are only 554,000 police in all state and local police forces in all of America. And Attorney General Janet Reno estimates that there are 500,000 street gang members nationwide. The smart money would have to be on the gangs at least until the National Guard and probably the federal military as well came galloping to the rescue of the outnumbered and outgunned police. If you want an ongoing example of a street gang undergoing a classic transformation into a political military organization, just consider the Chicago-based gangster disciples and their leader, Larry Hoover. Hoover, 45, has been in the belly of the Illinois prison system for 22 years for murder but that has not stopped him from running the 50,000-member gangster disciples who are spread over 35 states and who take in possibly as much as $500 million a year, primarily through drug sales. They have a 42-page constitution and a seven-tiered organizational structure with Chairman Hoover at the zenith and two separate boards of directors. They've put candidates on Chicago ballots and organized a protest march on City Hall. Hoover now, quote, lives and breathes politics, end quote, reads Machiavelli and studies how the late Chicago mayor Richard Daley put together his political machine. During the Al Capone era, the mobster murder rate for Chicago topped out at 75 in 1926. Police now estimate that the gangster disciples kill that many every year. This means that Larry Hoover has probably ordered the execution directly or indirectly of well over a thousand people. The federal and all the state governments combined have not executed that many people during the last 20 years. Of all American institutions, probably only the federal military has killed more people than Larry Hoover during the last two decades, and those were almost all foreigners. Mr. Larry Hoover is certainly America's most 
quote, productive, end quote, living murderer and, arguably, the greatest murderer in all American history. But I've only seen his name in print once. Think about that. Arguably, the greatest murderer in American history is right now right now in absolute control of an army of 50,000 armed men, yet he has less name recognition than President Clinton's cat. Mark my words, the establishment media will not change their perception of these organizations from that of street gangs to ethnic militias until a gang like the Gangster Disciples defeats one of our major cities, police departments, takes over Los Angeles or Chicago, and tears down the American flag. By that time, it will be too late. The federal military itself has been infiltrated by street gangs. According to Newsweek magazine, these gangs are active in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. They are active at more than 50 American military bases. They stake out, quote, turf and aircraft carriers, and gang members were photographed flashing gang hand signs during the Persian Gulf War. On December 4, 1992, gang members, including an Army Specialist 4th class, hacked a man and his three small children to death, one an infant, to protect a gang drug operation. The Army and the Air Force have issued a training manual to aid their investigators in combating stepped-up infiltration by gangs. The manual includes photographs and descriptions of gang hand recognition signals, a glossary of gang slang, and information about gang colors. This is the military that is supposed to hold the country together in Civil War II, a military that can scarcely hold itself together today. Gangs have even started to appear on Indian reservations. The Pima Reservation in Salt River, Arizona, had 55 drive-by shootings in 1994. Some of these Indian gangs are branches of black and Hispanic urban gangs. Mao Zedong approved of recruiting bandits into his revolutionary army, and he also noted that unsuccessful guerrilla armies had a tendency to devolve into bandit gangs. Pancho Villa started out as a bandit. Even the admirers of our own Civil War I guerrillas are hard-pressed to defend themselves against charges of banditry. As with nation and empires, there is a spectrum that starts with plain banditry on one end and runs to pure revolutionary military formations at the other. Bandit gangs evolve into armies, and armies devolve into bandit gangs. One such Serb bandit soldier is Zaljeko Raznitikov. I, I know I didn't say that right. Better known by his favorite alias, from his criminal days, Archon. Even those who disparage Archon must have to admit that he is the most productive gangster who racked up an impressive string of robberies, bank robberies, contract murders, jailbreaks, blazing with gunfire all over Europe. Back in Yugoslavia, he murdered a policeman, but so dazzled the communist powers that be that they put him on the payroll as an assassin. When the war in Yugoslavia broke out, Archon quickly set up a militia using a small mafia he had built up as the core. Archon and his tiger militia butchered entire villages of Croats and Muslims, raping young girls in front of their parents, then machine-gunning the lot. His army of psychopaths is self-financed by looting and has grown like a cancer 
In Sarajevo, Bosnia, two criminal gangs grew so rich from smuggling black marketeering, drugs, and prostitution that they quickly evolved into full-blown armies. In fact, the government made their leaders into army officers and their gangs into the 9th and 10th Mountain Brigades and assigned them the responsibility of the city's frontline defenses on the critical Trebivec Mountain. Eventually, it came to the point that these two gangs were so powerful that the legitimate Bosnian government had to move against them or count the days until the gangs moved on them. The two gang leaders, Musan Tapalovic and Ramiz Dalalik, were forced to surrender after fighting between their backers and government forces that left downtown Sarajevo a combat zone. Our American gangs lack only one item that prevents them from being a match for our federal military in street fighting. They still lack armaments, such as anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons that allow the street gangs and militias of Groznys to bloody the nose of the professional Russian army. This deficiency has not, not entirely escaped their attention. In 1986, the El Rukans, a black Chicago street gang, attempted to buy plastic explosives and a bazooka from an underground arms dealer. The arms dealer was actually an FBI agent, and several of the El Rukans were sentenced to prison when a raid on El Rukans headquarters uncovered three automatic weapons and a store of hand grenades. El Rukans intended to commit terrorist acts on American soil paid for by the Libyan government. The U.S. Justice Department held a street gang symposium in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in November 1994. According to Newsweek magazine, this gathering produced a report warning that, quote, when civil authority breaks down in America, our criminal gangs will instantly fill the power vacuum, just exactly as had been the pattern in other lands. The gangs have the organization and firepower to serve as the nucleus for actual armies, and since they will be self-financed in the coming time of chaos, they will grow like wildfire. Militias, cults like the Nation of Islam and other armed organizations will also rapidly grow into full-blown armies. If establishment leaders are not able to quickly reestablish central control prior to the evolution of gangs into armies, the government may be defeated in initial encounters and America may undergo a prolonged period of tribal and gang-driven anarchy before any sort of national order is reestablished, either by the gang armies or the establishment. Watch for more attempts by street gangs to acquire heavy weapons and their conjunctions for foreign governments, foreign terrorist organizations, and worst of all, American politicians. And I'm going to have another sip of tea. All right. Chapter 9. Our military bases fall to siege. Those skeptical about the ability of mobs and guerrillas to overthrow our government will point out its professional police and military, its great stores of heavy weapons, and its numerous military bases, and conclude that lightly armed guerrillas and amateur militias have no chance of success. This line of reasoning, while reassuring, is mere bean counting. Practical and historic examination of the perceived military strengths of the federal government reveals them as fatal weakness that will only hasten its downfall. Our military bases 
are a case in point. Since they're sited on supposedly friendly American soil, they weren't designed to withstand sieges. To withstand a siege, a certain fundamental feature is required. First, a cleared field of fire outside the outermost defensive perimeter to deny cover and concealment to besieging forces. Our military bases often abut cities or suburbs that tend right up to the outer perimeter. Others are surrounded by hilly and wooded terrain that will likewise provide ample cover for future besiegers. Second, they must have a serious defensive perimeter consisting of such features as minefields and bunkers for heavy weapons. Our military bases typically have a chain-link fence and nothing more. Third, they must have sufficient manpower, preferably dedicated infantry, to man the defensive perimeter. Our bases are typically guarded by a handful of security guards. Fourth, they should have hardened on-base facilities for storage of food, water, and ammunition, sufficient to last out sieges. They should have securely located internal runways and helipads for resupply by air during a siege. Critical command and control buildings should be hardened and located at some distance from the outermost perimeter. Few, if any, of our in-country bases have all of these features. Many have none. Typically, they're dependent on outside sources for food, water, and electricity, which will be easily cut off by besiegers. Typically, their security is designed to stop nothing more than the occasional burglar. Vietnam veterans will testify to the contrast between our fire bases in Vietnam that bristled with weapons and our poorly defended in-country military bases. In fact, many will be tempting targets for guerrillas seeking an easy source of heavy weapons and helpless federal troops to slaughter. It is instructive to recall that in Civil War I, all but three federal military bases in the South were quickly captured by state national guards or cobbled together militias, and the heavy weapons taken provided the backbone of the new Confederate Army. The same pattern recently repeated itself in Yugoslavia. I was stationed at one federal military base that had been captured by rebel forces with little difficulty. The base was a small supply depot, about half a block wide and three blocks long. It was sited on the edge of a small village. Its only security was a chain-link fence and an an amusing little minefield about four feet wide. The base had been manned by about 80 soldiers, mostly reluctant conscripts, and many were co-ethnics of the villagers who were secretly planning to take the base. A federal soldier, an NCO, secretly sided with the villagers and dispatched many of the base's soldiers to an off-base gymnasium to play soccer on the day of the attack, and ordered the board conscripts happily obeyed. About 20 villagers armed with homemade shotguns, some stolen AK-47s, and a few scoped sniper rifles occupied a hill overlooking the base and opened fire. The soldiers replied with machine gun and rocket-propelled grenades, but without much effort on the attackers who were dispersed and well-concealed behind trees. The base commander, cut off from the outside help, Without stores of food or water, surrendered to a force inferior in numbers and firepower, but superior in all other respects. If the episode sounds humorous, be advised that such incidents are not untypical of real civil wars, regardless of how Hollywood Rambos fight wars on television. 
It illustrates that in a civil war, the hearts and minds of the combatants count for a lot. And how did these villagers get the military knowledge necessary to capture a military base manned by professionals? Why, from the Yugoslav army, of course. Many were army veterans, and they were led by an ex-Yugoslav army officer. This pattern will be repeated many times in our next civil war. In our Civil War II, federal military bases will likewise be taken under siege by ethnic militias, and many of the federal defenders will be co-ethnics of the attackers. There will be numerous instances of defenders siding with the attackers, supplying them with information, deserting with their weapons, and even turning their assault rifles on their own comrades and officers. Vietnam veterans will again be familiar with this difficulty, that led to the fall of many of the South Vietnamese firebase. Chapter 10. Our police and military divide and clash. Neither are the police of much long-range comfort to the government. In fact, some police departments will be among the first organized groups to attack the federal government. Watch to see if our police voluntarily divide into ethnic-based groups hostile to each other. If they do... Civil War II is that much closer. Actually, many of our urban police have already divided themselves into ethnically exclusive and mutually hostile organizations called associations, one for each ethnic group. And the minority associations are successfully blocking the recruitment and advancement of white officers by racist affirmative action. Minority politicians are seizing control of the major cities and accelerating this purging of whites from their police departments. Urban police departments will become almost exclusively minority. The police outside the cities will remain primarily white. Armed clashes between police of different ethnic groups will occur, first between policemen within the same police department, and later between separate and ethnically exclusive police departments where their jurisdictions meet. Should our regular federal military, likewise, divide along ethnic lines, we will be past the point of no return towards Civil War II. Actually, it appears that racial associations have begun to appear in our military. On April 30, 1995, the television program 60 Minutes reported that an underground magazine called The Resistor was quietly circulating in Fort Bragg, North Carolina and other American Army bases. The Resistor is put out by Special Forces Underground, a clandestine group of the United States Army's elite Green Beret. The Green Beret, interviewed by 60 Minutes, believe that the constitutional rights of America are being illegally violated by the federal government. In the Resistor, these Green Berets are discussing the possibility and means of resisting the federal establishment by armed force, including guerrilla warfare. The appearance of the Special Forces Underground is ominously significant because the Green Beret are the military's primary counterinsurgency force, the very ones who will be assigned to track down and eliminate anti-government guerrillas in Civil War II. It is predictable that the military brass will use the appearance of the resistor as an excuse to politicize the Green Beret and that they will instruct affirmative action officers who are mostly minority purge the Green Beret of conservative white soldiers and replace them with radicals and minorities carefully screened for political reliability 
exactly as in the old Soviet Union. And I think that's been done, if I'm not mistaken, um, from information in recent years. Anyone who doubts that our military is being racialized and politicized should read an article by a Mr. C.J. Chivers that appeared in October 16, 1995 issue of The Nation magazine. In this article titled, quote, Looking for a few good, in parentheses, black men, end quote. Mr. Chiver enthusiastically described his activities while a Marine Corps captain assigned to recruiting officer candidates. Quote, I was actively discriminating against whites while selecting college students for officer candidate school. I routinely turned down long lines of qualified white males to save room for blacks. I denied whites interviews every few months. I threw stacks of their resumes into the trash. End quote. Recall that empires often employ elite military units for internal counterinsurgency. The Green Beret are being politicized, and we are perhaps witnessing the birth of America's elite internal counterinsurgency force, something like Russia's elite internal counterinsurgency force, the infamous MVD internal security that perpetuated the rape of Grozny. In fact, our entire military is being radicalized, and the message will not be lost on other white military personnel who will form other clandestine organizations in reaction, which will be used as a pretext for yet more purging and politicizing of our military. In fact, this politicizing is going on right now in the form of, quote, discrimination hotlines, end quote, used to turn in whites accused of racism. Quote, sensitivity classes are used to intimidate whites and ferret out discharge and discharge those whites who cannot be intimidated. Watch for more allegations of racism to purge conservative white officers and men, more sensitivity brainwashing classes, racist affirmative action programs, and racial quotas to radicalize or racialize and politicize our federal military. Our current system of racist recruiting and promotion means that every minority officer, NCO, and soldier knows that he owes his rank not to his own merit, but to an artificially maintained system of racist special privileges. Should any political reform movement gain power in Washington and attempt to dismantle this racist system, minority officers and soldiers will be tempted to attempt a coup d'etat or face losing their special privileges. If the minority soldiers and radical white soldiers outnumber the non-radical whites, America will become a military dictatorship and race war will erupt. General Colin Powell rose to the ultimate military position of chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not entirely on merit, but partly because he was black. But few dare to say this out loud. When Louis Farrakhan asked General Powell to join his million-man march on Washington, D.C., General Powell declined and cited schedule conflicts. This is exactly the same as some prominent German declining to march with pre-1933 Hitler, not because he objected to Hitler's psychotic racism, which parallels Farrakhan's, but merely because he was busy elsewhere. It is also no surprise that someone with General Powell's demonstrated lack of character favors racist affirmative action. As revealed by an October 6, 1995 issue of the New York Daily News, in 1985, General Powell was one of a group of prominent blacks who 
bought WKBW-TV, a Buffalo, New York television station, taking advantage of, of special tax breaks not available to whites. Blacks are making much progress in their racist agenda to gain exemption from taxation, as illustrated by General Powell's above manipulation. While simultaneously siphoning off more government aid intentionally channeled to blacks, but not to whites. It should also be noted that General Powell was engaging in his business, quote unquote, while on active duty and drawing government pay. Active duty military officers should not engage in private business ventures as they are time consuming distraction, which conflicts with a professional officer's sacred duty to devote all of his time and energy to looking after the defense of his country and the lives of the men entrusted to his command. Our military is looking more and more like a third-world military force every year, corrupt, politicized, tribalized, more interested in finance than fighting, and more oriented towards putting down internal rebellions than combating foreign enemies. Our army is currently about 40% minority, which means that it is more minority-dominated than society in general. This is not an accident. It is intended to put the ultimate power, military power, in two hands beholden to the new order. The saturating of our military with unqualified minorities and racially sensitive whites is being consciously and deliberately promoted by the new order to ensure that there is absolutely no chance that a reform movement can reverse the ongoing imperial conversion. When the federal military exceeds 50% minority, there will only be the smallest chance of stopping our conversion into a completely racist, undemocratic, imperial dictatorship without fighting Civil War II. Let's see. I think that I might stop here. I think I will look at the board, see if there's somebody here. It looks like there might be. Let's take a call. I need to give my voice a break. Hello, caller. What's your name? Hello, Urban. Hello. This is my violent part. Oh, hi, um, Mike. How are good? you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Do you have a question or uh, something that pertains um, to the material I do, that I read? I do, but before I get to that, I just want to remind our listeners how this crap all happened. Um, the, what you're reading is fantastic, but it doesn't get into, you know, um, what exactly uh, brought all this stuff and made everything possible. So, if you'll allow me a second. Um, it was the Jews who brought the niggers into the U.S. during the Jew-controlled slave trade. Then in the 60s, the Jews used their government puppets to abolish segregation, pass affirmative action, drastically change the immigration laws, and start opposing gun control. And let's not forget, the Christian churches have also conspired against flight. Recently, when the U.S. got flooded with those so-called poor Mexican children, it was the churches who have asked their members to give assistance. The churches around the world have asked whites to send non-whites money, food, clothing, and welcome them into their countries and even their homes. Um, I saw Rush Limbaugh, an episode of his radio show, some caller called in saying that uh, their city has been asked to take in all these uh, Mexicans and the churches have specifically asked their flock to let them stay in their homes for just a few months until the government, you know, figures it out. 
The churches are actually paying their parishioners to take these people. Um, that's uh-huh. a, a standard operating procedure. That Even runs the through Pope every has conspired against whites. Recently, he's well, asked the whites in Europe to open their borders and welcome a flood of non-white immigrants. And he's also recently traveled to Israel and showed his support for the Jews by kissing the Wailing Wall. And we've all seen the commercials from those Christian charities begging Americans send money to Africa. Yeah, we know there's millions of whites struggling with poverty in our own country. Has there ever been a Christian charity, commercial, whatever, asking to help them? Because I've never seen one. And when I watch 700 Club, which I can't even stand, but they'll always have some white American give a testimony of how he overcame poverty when Jesus helped him get a job, of course. Then they'll show their new... uh, charity campaign, which is always in Africa. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Very good comments, Mike, and uh, you're, yeah. you're spot on, uh, you know, with, with all of those points. Uh, Chittam doesn't, uh, as I mentioned uh, when I started reading this book last week, uh, he doesn't get into, he doesn't deal with the Jews at all. And, um, and he certainly doesn't touch uh, Christianity as an issue. Uh, at least uh, not as far as I remember. And so, you know, you sort of, uh, you know, you just work with what what he's, you know, given uh, in this this book. Uh, And, uh, you know, we know what we're working with and we know what's in play. And so, uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm no fan of uh, organized religions because they are not our friends. You know, they're all run by the Jews and... uh, this yeah. is a Jew game. It's Jew game, and, uh, you know, it's all on. So I think the book is interesting in, in many uh, respects. It it gives uh, maybe some insight to things that, you know, we don't typically think about. Um, of course, the things that we know, we do know, and we know well. Right. And so um, that said, uh, but your points were well made, and, uh, and I appreciate the call. Oh, you're and, welcome. Uh, and thank you for giving my voice a break. <laughs> well, I could easily uh, make another comment if you'd like. Well, certainly. Go ahead. Like a few months ago, like before I joined Midas Right and all that, um, these other places I went to for white racialists, you know, they were saying, oh, there can't be a racial holy war. Oh, that ain't going to happen. Oh, no. Uh, and then Ferguson happened. And there were still people who said, oh, no. No race war, no. Well, it's still going on. The niggers in Ferguson ha- are still rioting and looting. How long has it been? And here's the detail that most people probably don't know. There has been blacks from all over the United States going into Ferguson to join in on the looting and rioting. Um, this uh, person that I know of said that uh, they've been to Ferguson um, like many, many years ago for business and all that. And I can't remember what year it was, but it's been at least, it was something like within the last 10 years, there's only been one new business um, opened up because it is that bad. Because um, it's predominantly blocked. That's typical of um, what... Um uh, the the author of uh, Stuff Black People Don't Like calls it Black Run America, B-R-A. Right. 
and so he does a really good job of uh, of uh, critiquing uh, the cities that as they go down. It's typical of uh, the black takeovers that are happening all around the country. You know, it's an amazing thing to watch this and actually be watching it and, and people uh, not react to it uh, and, and, and act as though they don't even know it's happening. Uh, it's kind of maddening, um, to say the least. And, uh, you know, frustrating from our point of view, certainly. Mm-hmm. But... Um, that's the world in which we live, and uh, pretty zombified, if you ask me. <laughs> there was a protest, um, and it was Ferguson. Um, they're at a Cardinals baseball game, standing outside, and they were protesting, you know, the whatever. And there was, I think it was like maybe 20 blacks. There wasn't a single white person in that protest. It was all black. And on the other side, the audience was all white. And the blacks were clearly shouting, who do we want Darren Wilson? How do we want him dead? Clearly, they want this guy dead. There could be no misinterpreting their message. Um, you know, this is not a peaceful protest, as some people think. No, they just want him dead. They want their sacrifice. And in uh, St. Louis, a recent riot occurred when some black dude, who was also a criminal with a huge uh, criminal record, um, he was uh, he recently committed a crime in the police department. It was um, an off-duty cop who was moonlighting as a security guard. Well, he was there responding to the call. And the black dude shot him first, shot him six times, before his gun jammed. And then the cop shot him back. Right. Um, and then uh, the blacks in the were saying, oh, he didn't have a gun, he had a sandwich. Well, I mean, that's the way it works here. Blacks are given sanction by the Jews. The Jews own the media. So they control the yeah. message. And uh, they know that they've got the power because they've got the blessing of the Jews. And so our story, the white story, is not allowed to be presented while the black story has all of the power, gets all of the voice, and uh, and that's the world that we live in, and that's the battle that we fight. That's why we're all here. That's mm-hmm. why we're here. Uh, is there anything else you want to say, Mike? You've got, you're staying right on point. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I have more comments, but if you have other callers, I'll gladly wait. I'll just say this. I've been uh, promoting your show all over Tumblr, and the response are pretty good. Um, Thank you. I don't know you. if it's because they know you or they like your um, work or they know the book, whatever, but it's been pretty good. Um, Thank and you. And your show has been great. I'm getting my, uh, what are these? I'm getting my sea legs. <laughs> so uh, getting through this book will we'll get that for me, and uh, and then we'll see where we go from, from here. Uh, but it's uh, it's a pleasure for me to host a show on Midas Right. Um, they're like minds here. I am comfortable. And we have very few places where that can be said. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little valiant effort that we've got. Uh, I do have another caller. I, I think I do. Um, okay. Well, let me let me see if I if I have another caller. Caller, are you there? Yes. Ah, Bill. Hello, Bill. Hey, Bill. Yeah, I just wanted to mention uh, part of what you read there warned of another sign for 
Civil War II as being uh, politicians receiving assistance or aligning themselves with gang members. There's already been some of that to the extent that when we deal with the SPICs, organized crime groups operating here in the United States and in Mexico, uh, you know, mestizo groups, drug cartel type, have uh, donated money to SPIC politicians. And I think they're trying to uh, influence uh, elections here in that way. And, of course, there's been uh, SPIC politicians that are in favor of the Aztlan plan, which is taking back, from their point of view, taking back the southwest of this country. Congressmen, you know, mestizo congressmen in favor of that. Mestizo congressmen that have made comments along the lines that Europeans need to go back to Europe, that the white race is, you know, dying off here and good riddance, you know, that kind of thing. One of them, I can't remember his name, actually received a Congressional Medal of Honor uh, from Clinton, right? And he was a guy that has made statements on the radio in articles that are extremely anti-white and in favor of the breakup of the country, you know, with the Southwest uh, being in mestizo hands. And yet he wins a, uh, or is awarded... uh, (laughs) Congressional Medal of Honor. Well, certainly they're they're uh, they're laying all the groundwork for what what I'm reading about in this book, and it's pretty clear to people like us that that's happening. It's not so clear to other people, right? Because they get, they get their messages from the Jews, and so uh, you know the electric Jew is hard at work, and we try to counter that in our small ways. But you know, I think on an upside, I think that. I think that more people are alarmed, and I think that more people might be looking, and, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, not that numbers are anything that, uh, you know, that are important, uh, but but then again, I think awareness uh, is certainly uh, important, even on a, even on a minimalist level, uh, you know, awareness of the, the plight of where we are uh, has to be there for us. We're in we're in some big trouble here, big trouble. Yeah. None of us know how fast or how things will go down, but uh, certainly, um, I think uh, philosophically, the country is already clearly uh, divided, and um, will only get worse. Keeping in mind that this book was written in '97, and then updated in 2007, but I, I don't know how much of it was updated in 2007. It appears to me not so much. Right. He mentioned that in the Army at that time, I don't know if that part was updated in 2007, that non-whites were 40%, and he said that's greater than amongst the general population. Well, according to the 2010 census, that's pretty much in line because whites were placed at 62-point-something percent. And we know that the official numbers do not reflect the reality on the ground. It's worse than that. But even by official numbers, that's pretty much in line where he said the Army was. And it's probably worse today. Uh, I haven't checked recently, but the Marines, I think, are a little bit more white or considerably more white than the Army. And the Air Force has always been that way. So I imagine it probably still is. I mean, not as white as it was when I was in, but... That's 
usually the Army uh, is the worst uh, situation racially. Recently, uh, I think in the last six months, uh, they've done all of this uh, realigning of personnel. Uh, I know that uh, the Navy, um, oh, they cut huge numbers. I mean, and they didn't mention uh, that they were racial cuts, but you can imagine that they must be. I mean, you would think the Navy would be primarily pretty much white, I would think. You know, they're they're shifting a lot of things. We don't get the real picture because, you know, they don't divide those numbers racially, so we don't know. You also look at the MOSs that non-whites get into. I'm not making a moral judgment here, but it's still the case, at least uh, the last time I checked about five years ago, in terms of those who end up getting killed in these wars for Israel. It was looking at the Gulf War in what was that 90 or 91 the first one and then the Iraq war in Afghanistan and much higher than their percentages in the military for white who are still the majority I believe in all of them uh, you know they're the ones that are coming home in body bags the most uh, mm-hmm. they're usually the front line forces maybe the blacks and others are actually wise in, in their choices of <laughs> MOS's to the extent they don't want to get themselves killed for, from their point of view, whitey, for whitey's country or whatever. Although some of them, I know the gang's uh, leaders, and there's one of them, uh, I think he's still in Chicago in prison. He's recommended that, you know, these gang members go into the military and, and get themselves some military training and get into fields where they, I guess, uh, you know, would get the better type of training, which would mean they'd be at greater risk of death and all that. So maybe some of them are taking that advice, the same with the SPICs, you know, to get that kind of training. That makes sense. And, of course, the SPICs are even more organized than the uh, than the niggers, and, of course, they have more white blood in them. So, And they're very organized and connected with, you know, international <laughs> drug cartels and gangs and so forth that are far more sophisticated than the black gangs. Well, and the thing that uh, you know, that we recall from what I read last week uh, was uh, the structure, uh, the, the things that are important for uh, guerrilla insurgencies to, uh, to be successful. One of the criteria was the uh, international or uh, contiguous support from another nation. And, of course, um, you know, with that article that I sort of opened the show with about the Mexicanization of Wisconsin and the consulate, uh, a mobile consulate, that they're going to move around the country, a Mexican consulate, uh, wow, we've got some problems. (laughs) Well, yeah, they, they acknowledge by official numbers, which don't count illegals, that the Spixville for Milwaukee they call it the near south side, it had doubled in a 10-year period from 2000 to 2010, doubled, so population-wise. So they're growing. And, of course, in the southwest, even though they're everywhere, Wisconsin is nowhere near Mexico, and they're in the northeast, they're in the south, they're in the northwest, but they still are concentrated percentage-wise, the majority of them in the southwest. That's their focal point. Some of them believe they're going to take the whole continent all the way up to Canada with their high birth rate and all that. But they do have uh, 
what you mentioned there in terms of Mexico, uh, that government, and as well as organized crime groups, syndicates, drug cartels, will certainly assist them when the time comes that they want to battle for the Southwest. Well, and and given the current situation, um, and now it's sort of off the radar all of a sudden. As fast as it came on, it it sort of went away. Um, So nothing's being reported uh, lately uh, since the Ebola thing came up. uh, Now there's no emergency about... uh, the, the illegal children coming in across the from Mexico and, and that whole thing it's gone it's gone dark and uh, you know it's still going on and as uh, my violent heart brought up uh, you know a, a lot of that is being uh, facilitated through the churches all of them and they're sending them everywhere they're sending them to every city in the country uh, creating sanctuaries for them uh, within within cities city governments are doing this. Wow, I mean, they're building, they're building an army. And then, uh, you know, these attorney groups and the Civil Liberties Union has put out appeals for attorneys for these, uh, for these invaders, for these uh, yep. uh, spiklets, because there's so many of them, and it's coming in a short period. Uh, not that that's more than we get in terms of just generally spics coming, but I guess with the younger ones. Uh, unaccompanied by parents or any adults, I guess. Uh, anyway, to get attorneys, you know, to sure. help them through their appeals because they they show stats that show that they're more likely to get refugee status if there's an attorney present. This just shows you how crazy, you know, the laws are here and how we're run by our enemies, that somebody who's not a citizen has the rights, supposed rights, privileges, that are assigned to American citizens, you know, like right. to have to be able to have an attorney. Now, they actually don't pay for them, though, like they have to, like with a public defender for Americans. But, you know, there's plenty of groups out there with the Jews at the head of it and the Christians as well that will provide them attorneys anyhow, even though right. the government so far doesn't pay for that, although they're talking about maybe doing that <laughs> down the road. But there's a whole bunch of our uh, supposed rights that that have been applied for decades and decades now to people who aren't citizens. And they keep talking about their rights and all that and how we have to give them this right and that right. And this whole idea of refugees is a bunch of bullshit anyway. Shouldn't have any kind of policy where we have to, and that's how the law is, if somebody can prove their refugee status, that there would be some kind of risk to them going back. By law, they have to take them. And that's just absurd, I mean, but yet they don't do that when it comes to people from Germany. You know, Pierce talks about, had talked about that in that podcast streams through here. He had somebody at the National Alliance there that was a musician, you know, in, in the music industry there and said some things that weren't politically correct. He was in the United States and they, you know, that's a real refugee. And according to the law, if you're going to be sent back to a country where somebody's going to be punished for something that's not illegal here, that's a refugee. That's but right. yet, you know, they broke his arm when they came and arrested him, the FBI, and they sent his ass back to go to prison for words that would have been protected, you know, by our second, uh, mm. uh, or is it the First Amendment? Yeah, First Amendment here. Good points, Bill. Good points. Yeah, it's a mess, and uh, I, I've got uh, my violent heart on mute. I'm going to 
pull him back in. Uh, we've got a few more minutes. See if he's got some more to say. Um, I live in a small town in Illinois, and it was probably like 2000, maybe four, whatever. The Mexican, whatever you'd want to call them, mestizos. Uh, I I didn't see any of them in my town, and I've lived here since ever. And then suddenly, within the last few years, we started getting more Mexican restaurants uh, and then more mestizos showing up. And now, I don't know what their their percentage is, but there's a lot of them. And they're all dressing like blacks and on drugs and whatnot. And the drug problem has gone way up since then. And um, there's this point I wanted to make um, about Ebola. Um, all those Ebola treatment centers around the country that have been built. If you look at the map and then compare it to where um, they've been sending those uh, undocumented children, it's the same place. Um, oh, they're my. building those. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could find a link, but uh, it was a couple months ago, and I'll search for it. Anyway, um, yeah, they, they know that uh, all these immigrants are bringing with them diseases and stuff. Um, There's this news report I heard. Um, it wasn't in the South by any means. Um, I don't remember what uh, state it was in, but it was somewhere up north where um, the city was controlled by uh, some Mexican or whatever. And uh, the school was predominantly Mexican. It was like uh, 40% whatever. And this white girl was in class, and she was the only female in that class. And the rest of the students were all Mexican boys. Um, the teacher, the teacher's story on this is uh, pretty vague, but allegedly she stepped out for a couple minutes to deal with something in the hall, and when she came back, that white girl was brutally gang raped. And then uh, the school, instead of, you know, arresting all those rapists like they should have done, um, they had the rapist and that girl locked in some, like, room so they could talk about it and come to an understanding. And they raped her again. No, my. There wasn't any rioting done over that. I mean, white people, I don't know what it is, but... Stories like this are coming out every day, and it's not just yeah. one story. It's dozens, really. hundreds. We, we, right. we know that. We, I mean, we could go to newnation.org, and you could read stories all day long. And I think I'm going to close the show out for this evening. Uh, I think it was a good show. And thank you for yeah, your comments, uh, Bill, on My Violent Heart. Uh, it was welcome. very good and, and on topic. So uh, we'll close the show out and uh, look forward to uh, our show next Monday. And we'll continue uh, until we finish this book. And uh, I think maybe two more, two or three more shows might do it. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Thanks for listening, and thanks, thanks you guys for calling in, and uh, thanks for all the comments and chat. All right. Uh, I'm going to close it out. Calling all the clans together Calling all 
the clans together. Calling all the clans together. Brothers, come around. Calling south and north together. Calling west and east together. Calling all the clans together. Brother, come around. Can't afford to be a bit of sleeping. Can't afford to be a bit of sleeping. Can't you see the reaper eating? Brothers come to run. Never mind the shells are flying. Never mind the dead and dying. Can't you hear the piper piping? Brother come to run. Come running fast, come running hard, running for all you work. Come running through the gates of hell itself and let the devil take the hindmost. We're gonna be calling all the clan together, calling all the clan together, calling all the clan together, brothers come running. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.